mindfulness mode. It's a tool to help you develop your intuitive side. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to Mindfulness Mode. And today is a part two of an episode I already recorded. But if if you haven't heard part one, this is a standalone episode. It, it will just make complete sense to you, I think, just hearing this on its own. It's by an author who is a physicist, he's a lecturer, he's author of the My Big Toe trilogy of books, Toe standing for theory of everything, and we've discussed consciousness on the last episode, and we're continuing our discussion, and we couldn't discuss consciousness without talking about religion and what that means to Tom. And we talk about that, we talk about studying and how he got to the point where he was a highly esteemed physicist. And uh, so let's just go right into that interview. Thanks for joining us, and I just hope you enjoy the interview. I'm here with Tom Campbell, and we're continuing our discussion from last day about his theory of everything, my big toe. And we just ended that discussion on, we were talking about self-centeredness. We've talked about ego, talked about consciousness. And I just want to pick up where we left off, Tom. It was such an interesting discussion. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about what what makes people tick and what, uh, influences people and so on. And I, I was just going to move on to a question that's not so much about consciousness. It's a question about breathing. And we haven't talked about breathing. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice, part of your life. First of all, I'll have to say that I don't really have a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice that's formal anymore. Mm-hmm. I did long time back, but eventually it's not something you do. Like I say, it's something you become. Sure. And it's just it's just the way you are, and it's just a piece of you. So I don't really meditate anymore because I live in a meditation state. So I can, you know, move my mind. I have discipline of my mind that I can get in and out of various reality frames just by shifting my my viewpoint. I just shift the mind to that spot and it only takes tenths of a second. So it used to be, you know, you go, you'd lie down and you'd relax and you go through all this stuff. And, you know, half an hour later, you know, you'd maybe be out of body or doing some other kind of thing. And, and it's not like that anymore. Now it's just a, a shift of focus and you're there. So eventually your life becomes a meditation and you don't go do things like mindfulness exercises or meditation exercises they they no longer are helpful because you're already there you don't have to do something to get there because you you live there all the time so so that would be one caveat so so then the question is um let's see what um the question is yeah, about you, breathing, about breathing. Oh, if yeah, breathing, any, do you, breathing. Do you put any particular focus on how you breathe or, or anything like that? No, I don't. I don't really put any focus on the breathing at all. All that stuff just happens by itself. You know, when yeah. I was meditating, I didn't use the breathing uh, type of meditation. I used the mantra type of meditation. Yes. 
but I don't say mantras anymore and I don't need to. I can be in a meditation state an instant. And it's the same with the breathing. Breath, just like a mantra, is used because it fills your mind with something that's non-operable. By non-operable, I mean it's nothing that you're going to think about. Oh, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. You know, that just happens automatically. You don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And the mantra is just some word that doesn't mean anything in particular. You know, it's a word that has kind of a resonant ending and, you know, that has a little vibration to it. But other than that, it's just a sound. Yeah. And any sound will do as well as any other sound. I know sometimes people sell magic sounds for meditation mantras and stuff, but any sound will do just as well. It's not important. It's you use that sound of the mantra to replace thoughts that come into your head. You know, you're trying to have no thoughts. Thought comes into your head. So the mantra kind of fills up your mind space, crowds the thought out. Well, same with the breathing. When you breathe and you take your deep breath and you relax, you know, and you're aware of this kind of being in a relaxed state and you focus on on, uh, being in touch with everything. And, you know, that's just, it's sort of a similar thing. Eventually, you don't need to be focused on your breath or anything else. You just, you live in that state all the time. So I don't do any kind of breathing uh, exercises or anything. I just am. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in how you started off with meditation and it seemed as though you had this incredible ability from the very very beginning from the first experience you had with meditation you've you nearly fell off your chair because you were (laughs) in such a deep state of meditation what do you attribute that to why do you think you fell into such a deep state and it came so naturally to you while it doesn't for others well there's two reasons particularly one When I came here, I came to this world, I was a very right-brained, holistic person. Um, I tended to think in big pictures, you know, was very intuitive. And I knew that I needed to develop my left brain. Mm -hmm. I needed to be able to do logical processing. Mm -hmm. So I put a lot of effort into it. But it wasn't easy because it wasn't natural to me. Sure. But I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And eventually it became easy. So then, you know, the the math became a, a simple thing once you understand it. But it took me a lot of work. So I still kept that right brain side going all that time. I didn't let the right brain go and develop the left. I kept the right brain and kept using it and remained intuitive while I trained myself to be more left brain and more logical process. So I was a graduate student when I, when I first learned to uh, do transcendental meditation, 20, $25 and a banana. Yes. That was the, that was <laughs> and the a price. banana. I know that was <laughs> such a funny story. Yeah. So anyway, it, yeah, I took to it very, very quickly because I really was unusual in the sense that I'm right brain and left brain. And now I'm extremely right brain and extremely left brain. You know, I do, I do both. Uh, as comparison to others, I'd be extreme pretty much on, on both ends of it. But the other thing is that I came here to do this. So I came here to 
that's why I knew that I had to develop the left brain, that I had to be into science, even though that wasn't where my natural inclinations lay. I would have been more in philosophy or something like that. But I knew I had to do that. And I knew that just as clear as anything. So I did, I did the work to get there because I had to get a technical degree. I had to be of use to the system while I was doing that, growing up, evolving, you know, all that kind of thing had to be happening as well. So I think I'm one of the people who came here kind of with a mission. And that's not typical, but it happens not that infrequently in the, in the margins, but it's not a main thing. Typically you come here just to get experience. But uh, the way growing up works is that when you first grow up, it's still pretty much about you learning, growing. It's still mostly about you. Once you grow up some, then it starts to change to be about from just from about you mostly to teaching. It's about other people. How can you help? Mm -hmm. How can you help them grow up? How can you create an environment where they can change themselves more easily? Kind of thing. So you start out just the individual student, and then you become the student and the teacher, and you stay that way for a long time. But the ratio of how much a student, how much is teacher just gradually changes to where you're a little bit a student and mostly a teacher. And at that point, you become useful to the system, to the larger consciousness system, because now you have an ability to be more helpful, and more useful, you can give back more than you could when you were just mainly working on yourself. So it just growth just goes that way. You know, the, the, the more you know, the easier it is to know more. And the more you know, the more you're inclined to help other people know more. I'm interested in your life as a child and how old were you when you started to know some of these things that you're describing, know that you needed to develop both sides of your brain and, and know that you wanted to become uh, a person who was knowledgeable in physics? Yeah, that, that probably happened slowly up until about the time I got into high school. I was kind of on that path. I popped through some other career choices while I was yeah. younger, but just, but they were all, they were all technical in the sense that they were all logical process. Sure. Yeah. When I was, when I was like 10 or 11, I was really uh, uh, enthralled by cars. So I was going to become a mechanic. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I was 12 or 13, I was going to become a, a pilot. I'm going to become an airplane pilot. Uh -huh. And then after that, it turned into scientist. And that stuck with me then for the rest of it. So by the time I got to college, I knew I was going to be a science. I was going into science. That was the that was what I needed to do. I found the science concepts not so hard, but I found the mathematics very challenging. Mm -hmm. Until I probably is about halfway through graduate school, and then it's like, aha, <laughs> I get this. This isn't so hard. Okay. And then it all you know it just all started to get easy. But it, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a different way of thinking. You know, it's a different way of thinking. And I was an unusual child, an unusual student in that I didn't want to, nor did I have much ability to memorize things. Uh -huh. I was kind of against memorization. And 
I was very much against what I called arbitrary authority. Um, I needed to derive everything from basic principles. So I found out that the time I was in, you know, physics major and even in graduate school, I would approach a physics problem much differently than all my other classmates. Really? I would approach a physics problem from, you know, basic principles. You start at the beginning and then you work your way up through until you, you know, you get your solution. Mm -hmm. And most of the other students had memorized the appropriate mathematics that would be used in the appropriate way to solve this particular problem. Okay. So that's how they, that's how they came at it. So I came at it from a, a much more holistic bottoms up there, you know, derive it. And when I would see those answers, oh yeah, you can use this calculus and you can apply it to this kind of problem. You get that answer. To me, that was not satisfying. It wasn't like, well, I know how to do that. As far as I was concerned, that was just a trick. That was a process. That was turning a crank right. to get the right answer. And that didn't mean you knew any physics at all. Right, sure. You see, if you didn't really understand it. So I was always slow. I was one of these people that if it was a time test, I was in trouble. But if it, if it was all the time you needed, I was really good. Okay. Because I had to work through everything. I couldn't memorize things. I was the kind of person that any, you know, even in college, you know, I, I couldn't tell you, somebody asked me, how old are you? I'd have to go back and work it up. And think I knew about, when I was born yeah. and I'd have to figure it out and go. I couldn't remember how old I right, was. Right, right. You know, because I, I just didn't remember things. Yes. I, uh, I had to figure everything out. Fascinating. I, I think there was a part of me that just rejected the idea of memorizing and regurgitating. Yeah. To me, that was a like a, a zero process. It didn't give you anything, didn't leave you with anything. It made you seem smart and made you do better on tests, but it didn't leave you any any more educated or didn't leave you actually understanding what you were doing. Well, there's so, so many reasons why it's fascinating to talk to you. And one of them is that my son, when he was eight or nine years old, had decided that he wanted to become a scientist. Then all through uh, high school, he, he enjoyed math and science, but he was very, very active in music and drama. And this was, mm -hmm. this was a big part of his life. And I thought, wow, he's so creative. And then he's like, well, I want to be a physicist. I want to be a theoretical physicist. And uh, he applied to uh, three universities and got in at his, at his choice of Waterloo. Uh, we live in Canada. And uh, so he's a student at Waterloo University. And like you, he would do extremely well if he had all the time in the world to complete <laughs> the exercises and the, yeah. and the exams. And he's... In my opinion, he's, he's just very brilliant, but he operates at a slower speed than some other people. Yeah. And so yeah, I was always very slow at, at yeah. almost everything because I just rejected memorization. Right. It's just in, in general. So memorizing how to get right answers to me was, you might as well not get it. Would an not make sense. As, yeah. It wouldn't make sense. Yeah. It just wasn't something I wanted to do. So I wouldn't do it. And, uh, Yes, I was very slow. But on the other hand, then I get to graduate school and, you know, I was, 
I was, uh, I guess, a little uh, envious of the guys that could write the right answer down in a, you know, in a few minutes, because mm-hmm. I couldn't. Right. But I found out after talking with them, as we sit down, a bunch of us would solve problems together, you know, problem sets, and we solve them as a as a group. Mm-hmm. And I found out that they were envious of me because I could solve the problems that they couldn't. Okay. The problems that they hadn't learned right. uh, a, a methodology to get the right answer, then they were stuck. Yeah. And I wasn't stuck, but I was very slow and they weren't, <laughs> they were, they were very fast. So it had its advantages and disadvantages, but uh, that's just the way I'm made. You know, it has to make sense, has to be derived from the bottoms up. Otherwise it's just not even worth doing it. So if your son's like that, then I, I'd tell him to persevere, you know, just keep, just keep doing it. Don't learn to plug and chug any more than you have to, to, you know, to, to get a decent grade, but just make it make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then you don't understand it yet. Wow. Thanks for that advice. He will appreciate that. Keep trying it. Yeah. He will appreciate that. It's, it's a handicap in an academic situation to be slow. But it's a great advantage once you get out in the real world to be able to solve problems that other people and your peers can't solve. Now, suddenly, that's a real advantage because now you and those other people who maybe got better grades than you do have to do real solve real problems, you know, in the real world. And they don't know where to start because they didn't read ever in a book how to solve that problem. Because these problems in the real world are not in books, you know, they're just problems that happen and you have to be able to solve them. So it'll, he'll pay a penalty while he's in school, but he'll reap the benefits once he gets out. Such great advice. And I appreciate hearing this from you so much because he loves what he does. He loves physics. He loves learning. But it is challenging when, you know, he has these time restraints, which you usually do, you know on the assignments and the exams and so on. And of course now everything's online and uh, that's had its own challenges because he wants to be in a, in a brick and mortar room with a professor and he wants to be able to ask Mm -hmm. questions directly there in that room and, and talk to the prof afterwards and things like that, which you can't do the same way when it's online. Yeah. Well, a good professor is worth a lot. Yeah. Um, but bad professors aren't worth much. I think that's why I had so much trouble with with uh, math in the early days is because math is almost exclusively taught as plug and chug. Yes. You know, come up with a with a pattern. You know, here's the process you do to go from this this problem and here's how you get the answer. So you just learn to plug and chug. And I would not accept that. So I'd look at those things and everybody else would be already ahead of me. And I'm still trying to figure out well, what does this mean? Yeah. You know, what what what's the significance of this in, in reality in the world? You know, what are we talking about here? And nobody ever taught me that. Nobody ever brought that up in math classes. Nobody ever really discussed what was being done, you know, and, and how did it make a difference in the real world? You know, what was it that this math was 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 doing? And what's what was the point of doing that? So because I didn't have that, then I had to create, I had to figure that out on my own without any professor or without any teaching because the textbooks didn't do that either. The textbooks all just 
say, here's the method. Here it is. Here it is. Plug Here these numbers in this yeah. way and do these operations do on it. them and pop out comes the answer at the bottom and move on. Yeah. And uh, so I struggled with math until I got to a point where it all started to make sense and I did understand what was going on. And then from then on, the math got easy because I, I saw what was happening, what was going on. But that was a, that was a struggle for me. But I think that was probably because math is not taught very well. Mm. It's taught terribly. Nobody teaches the significance of it. They just teach the how to plug and chug is yeah. what we call it. You know, you plug in the numbers and chug, chug through the process to, to get the right answer. Well, it's, it's fascinating to talk to you and to hear you say this because that does describe Ben for sure. It really does. I want to talk to you a little bit more about, um, you know, as you got interested in consciousness and you were, you were a physicist by day and then you, mm -hmm. you worked with the ideas of consciousness by night, I find that so fascinating. Would that have happened if you hadn't gone to that TM class? Maybe eventually it would have happened anyway. I think because I was kind of programmed here to do those sorts of things, I think I would have ended up there, but it would have been a, a longer, less efficient route. And I don't know if I had ended up in the same place or not, but perhaps a similar place, but I don't know. I think a lot, you know, a lot of the choices, every time you make a choice, some other choices disappear. Yeah. You know, when you, when you have all this set, here's all the choices I can make. But when I make this choice, then some choice over here, I no longer can make that disappears. And then I make a different choice and some other choices appear. When I make a choice now, the, since I've made that choice, new things appear in my decision space. So as you go through life, you know, some, some opportunities and choices will, will blossom because of the choices you made and others will disappear. So it's, you know, we, we make our choices just as we get to them and we create a life for ourselves as we go. And there's a fairly strong component of randomness in that. It kind of depends on where you are and what you're doing at the time you're ready to do more. As we talk about consciousness, I want to ask you about God and your, your thoughts on God and how, how people think about God and, and so on. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, um, I was at a, a Unitarian church giving a program there that that was just the venue. Mm -hmm. They had a less expensive room to rent than anybody else. And the, there were two theologians there that went along with that church, like the, you know, number one and his assistant sure. kind of thing, because it was a pretty big building and a lot of people. So in any case, they were there while I was giving my talk, and and uh, I asked them something I, I just came to me to do. I asked them, I said, well, you two both have PhDs in theology. Tell me, what are the attributes of God? Now, I don't want dogma, you know, in any particular thing. I just want the general, what are the attributes of God? And this was a unity church, so they weren't too dogma base. They're a little less dogma in that organization. So they spent a little bit of time in conference talking to each other for about a minute or so. And they came up with this list of attributes of God. 
And the reason I'd ask is because I compared that list to the attributes of the larger consciousness system. And I thought, I wonder how they're going to compare. And as it turned out, it was a one for one. Everything they had on their list was also an attribute of the larger consciousness system. Now, when people think of, of God in less general ways than those folks thought of it, you know, more dogmatic ways, they think of perfect, you know, it's perfect. All knowing, knows everything all the time. You know, it's supernatural. It's, um, I don't know, I guess that's probably enough. It's infinite. You know, well, my larger conscious system is not infinite. It's, it's a natural system, not a supernatural system. It, everything is a part of it, but it's not necessarily aware of everything all the time. It has to focus its attention on things. And it can be aware of a whole lot more than I can because it's got a lot bigger, you know, mind than I have, but it's also limited in that you know, it, its number of bits are limited. It's finite. So it has to be efficient in the way it does things. It can't just do things sloppily. If it's going to make a simulation, it's got to do that in an efficient way. It has constraints. It has a boundary. What's outside that boundary? Have no idea. And we can't know because we're in, we're in it, we're consciousness. We can't see and experience outside of what we are, you know? So yes, a lot of people that are very religious or at least they describe themselves as very religious that also like my big toe. Mm -hmm. It's not, they're not incompatible. I expected them to be incompatible because my brush with religion had most of it as being very dogmatic. Sure. But I found out that there are lots of people as individuals, though they may belong to a dogmatic religion, they're not dogmatic at all. They've outgrown that. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't have to go there. The, the details don't matter to them. They see the big picture. You know, it's about being kind and caring. It's about love and, you know, to have all the big picture stuff. And, you know, they're just not that interested in the details that aren't important to them. So in that sense, you know, the larger consciousness system is the source of everything else. The larger consciousness system does help us evolve. It'll interact and work with us because our evolution is also its evolution because we're a piece of it. So as you know, we talk about terms of evolution, terms of entropy, lowering entropy is more evolved, higher entropy is more chaotic. So as we lower our entropy in our little piece of consciousness, well, we're part of the system. System entropy goes down. So it's motivated for us to be more successful. Hence, it created that virtual reality for us so we could speed up our, you know, our evolution because uh, not just because it was feeling grandiose at the time to do that, but it was part of its own strategy. We are part of its own strategy for evolving. And like any very complex system, you can either evolve or you de-evolve. Staying forever in some place in between just doesn't happen. Eventually, you're going to end up de-evolving or evolving. So if you're a, an information system that evolves by lowering its entropy, 
you have to keep working on evolving. The way you lower entropy is by putting effort in. Entropy doesn't just lower all by itself. Entropy raises all by itself, second law of thermodynamics. You don't put any kind of input into a system. Eventually, it'll dry up and blow away. You know, it, right. it disappears. Right. Everything has a vapor pressure. You know, not only ice cubes, but everything has a vapor pressure, and it just sublimates away. Right. Because little molecules and particles are zinging, zinging off the surface all the time. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's kind of the idea of God. Yes, this system does change a lot of theology because it doesn't have the perfect infinite system, you know, but all the major components are still there and all the, the uh, ideas. So I think what it does when it, became, you know, it's a theory of everything. And when you have a theory of everything, you wouldn't have everything if it didn't also include God. Sure. Once you really understand everything, including consciousness, then that just falls out of it. Not because I was trying to derive that. It just fell out like most of these things. It just fall out because it's part of everything. Tom, it's so, so fascinating talking with you about this. And as we move toward the, the conclusion of part two today, I just want to have you tell us how can we learn more? Of course, read the three books, read My Big Toe, uh, all three books. But where do we move from there? I know your website has a lot to offer. Tell us where mm -hmm. we can find you online and, and how we okay. can learn more. Okay, there's several places to go online. One, of course, would be my website, which is www.my-big-toe.com. Got to put the hyphens in. Right. Uh, otherwise, you'll end up someplace else. Yes. Um, and there you will find videos where you can then, if you press, press that button, you'll go to my YouTube channel, which is www.youtube.com slash TWC. JR44. That's as in Thomas Warren Campbell Jr., born in 1944. So TWCJR44. So that will get you to all my my YouTube things. And like I say, there's tons and tons of stuff. But now when you go to my site and pick and uh, go to the video, you'll also see that there is a search engine for videos. And you can put in keywords, subjects that you'd like to search. And it'll go through all 1,500 hours of that video and, and send you just to the places where they talk about that subject. So you don't have to find that needle that's buried in that you know, huge haystack. I have this software that uh, will find that needle for you. And if, the, if it's an instance that happens a lot, it'll, it'll rate them. So the one that is most, most definitional, that'll be at the top and so on as they, as they write down. So that's part of the tools. The other place to go is in www.mbtevents, all one word, mbtevents.com. And that's a site where Donna and Keith, who are, they're planners. They, they help me uh, you know, with all the, with all the uh, courses that I give and the lectures and that sort of thing. They are kind of my, my handlers, mm -hmm. yeah. My, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it. organizers. That's probably sure. in other words, you know. So sure. a lot of stuff is there, 
So now you can buy the books at my website or any bookstore. The bookstore doesn't have them and ask them to get them. They, they can. Mm -hmm. It's all on Amazon, of course. You can buy them there. But there's a couple of, of products that will go with it. One, read the books first because that's most foundational. But most of the science is not in the books because I wanted the books to be everyday, you know, reads for everyday people. Sure. I didn't want to make that real technical. So I, I kept most of the science out of the books. But if you look at the YouTube videos, I do a lot of science there. And particularly if you're interested in the science, when you go to YouTube, go to playlist. That'll be a little thing you click on mm -hmm. right near the top. Yeah. And it opens up a playlist and I have a science playlist in there. So if you go to that, you'll find there's like six videos in it. I think now uh, it starts with a trilogy, a, a science trilogy that I did uh, a year or so ago. But just go through those and you'll have almost all the all the science there. Uh, I have one other thing going on, and that's an organization called CUSAC, which is Center for the Unification of Science and Consciousness. And that's a 501c3. Uh, that means it's tax deductible, you know, if you give money to it. And that is an organization that is getting a set of experiments, quantum mechanics experiments that I thought up, that I created. Mm -hmm out to universities and and uh, we have now universities working on them and those those experiments um should if they work out the way i think no of course that's never a given right that's no. why you do experiment that's right yes <laughs> if you knew for sure you wouldn't have to do the experiment right so, anyway so if they work out the way i think it'll be kind of a big deal in physics and it will create some evidence science runs on evidence not on proof math runs on proofs but science runs on evidence right so it'll create some evidence that not only is this a virtual reality but that consciousness is the computer so those will be some some uh, quantum physics experiments that's never been done before fascinating get done that'll help do that so that's that's going on that and i I had a peer-reviewed paper printed in a physics journal. It was called uh, uh, Quantum Foundations, International Quantum Foundations. And um, that was when I introduced these experiments. And then I set up the 501c3 with a Kickstarter program to get the money to pay for them to be done. And then I got some donors that were real helpful, and now they're getting now they're getting done fantastic so all that's all that's about four years old but we're getting there fantastic it's a long haul so those are kind of things that are that are going on i just put out well i have two things that are just recent products i put out that you people might be interested in when i tell people that you if it's not your experience then it's not your truth then they came back to me with well how do i get that experience help me get the experience. And they're talking about experience within the larger consciousness system, exploring consciousness with your mind. So uh, they had me there and I started doing courses to teach people how to do all the paranormal things, you know, mind to mind communications, remote viewing, databases, auras, healing, all those things are not hard to do. Mm -hmm. they're, they're easy things to do. And so I started teaching that. And the two products I have now is I have a do it at home course 
that uh, you don't have to go someplace and take the course and travel. And it's relatively inexpensive because when you had to travel, it turned out to be like you know two thousand dollars. Sure, that was expensive. Yeah, but uh, the stay-at-home courses, you know, I don't know, it's just a hundred dollars or something. It's not much, and you can get all of the questions and answers combined from dozens of these courses that I gave. So it's all been turned up into a package that you can take. So that's one product. So if you're really interested in experiencing the larger consciousness system, then I'd say get that that course. It's really good. It's um, anyway, you'll find it. Go yeah. to go to the MBT events. And the other thing is I just put out a thing called Tom's Park. And Tom's Park is a tool that you can use if you get frustrated trying to do those paranormal things. It's a tool to help you develop your intuitive side. And that's all the paranormal stuff is on the intuitive side. Plus, there's a lot more on the intuitive side besides. So developing your intuitive mind is a difficult thing for somebody who's very left brain, who's very logical process. It's a, they're, 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 their uh, intellectual side gets in the way. Sure, It's always butting in the way and fouling up the process. So this is a tool that you can use iteratively. You can use it over and over and over again. The more you use it, the the better you'll get kind of a thing. So Tom, it's been such so an honor. I'll put all of those links in our show notes at <laughs> mindfulnessmode.com. Thank okay. you so much for being with us. Any last comment, one sentence comment to end our interview today. It's been so great. Yes. If you want a better life, if you want to find more happiness and better relationships, be positive. That's it. Be positive. That means positive in the things you think, the way you react, just be positive. And if you try to be positive, you will by default start getting rid of some of your fears. So be positive in everything. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been an honor. All the best. Thank to you. you. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye now. Mindful Tribe, I hope you liked that interview with Tom Campbell. I thought it was very powerful. So thrilled to have met him and to have the opportunity to ask him all these questions and, and talk with him. Well, yeah, take his advice. Be positive. Be as positive as you can. And that will, like he says, get rid of some of your fears. And that's one of our goals, isn't it? To deal with and get rid of some of our fears. And if you do have fears, if you do have struggles that are just pulling you down and you feel like you can't, you know, pull yourself up without some help, well, don't be afraid to ask for help. It's, it's what we do. It's what I do. It's what lots of my friends do. We look for experts. We look for people that can help us in areas where we need some extra help and, and we go for it. Just make that decision. Well, through the hypnosis that I do with my clients, we get into some of these places where, you know, there are challenges that just seem insurmountable. We do hypnosis, we talk about what's going on, and we work through this. And, and sometimes fears are eliminated in one or two sessions. Sometimes it takes longer, sometimes we move on to other fears. Well, consider 
this for yourself if you are going through some challenging times. Just send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Put in the subject line, coaching session, and we'll get on a call and we'll talk about what I can do to help you out. So with that, just take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.